All right. <clears throat> it's interesting how some messages stick with you, sometimes for years. You keep thinking about them after you've heard them even years ago. And a few years ago, Jim Blanton gave a message one Sunday morning that did just that with me. And I don't know if anybody else remembers it or not, but the basic idea behind the message was that to figure out, we're supposed to figure out what direction God is heading and then get on board and go with it. I don't know if Jim even remembers giving that message, but if you combine that message with the fact that the men's Bible study this past Friday morning had a great discussion about godliness and what it's supposed to look like. And after that discussion, I couldn't help but think that about how easy it is to get complacent about our role here on earth as Christians. And this circular discussion that I had with myself ended up settling in on a single sentence in the book of James. And we all know the, the sentence, faith without works is dead. And during this time of coronavirus and shutdowns and holding up and wearing masks and disliking anybody who thinks differently than you and a hundred other unsettling things that people are going through right now, I think it's been a little bit difficult to focus on our mission. A little bit hard to minister to people or even think about ministering to people. But the truth is that our mission hasn't changed at all. <clears throat> our purpose hasn't differed. And our need to be involved in other people's lives didn't go away because we have a virus. And here's the thought process that went into the discussion we're about to have this morning. <clears throat> the book of James says that works must accompany salvation. Jim Blanton urged me to figure out which way God was going and head in that same direction. So he thinks I'm supposed to be doing something about it too. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, which sounds easy to me. <clears throat> and when you add the biblical scholars like Zane Hodges or Charles Ryrie or Charles Stanley, who all say the only biblical requirement to salvation is to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And a life void of good works still gets you into heaven. Ah, but John MacArthur, he says that good works must accompany salvation. If salvation is there, good works are going to be there. So what am I supposed to believe about this idea of works? What do works look like? What's the purpose of good works? <coughs> Can I actually put wheels on Jim's message from a couple years ago and run it down the street? Does that work? Can I figure out which direction God's going and head in that direction? Commit myself to a life of service to him. Can I say that I'm willing to do what God wants me to do? But he just hasn't asked me to do anything, so that's why I'm doing nothing. Is there a responsibility on my part to make these things happen? 
There's a lot of questions surrounding this topic. But the first thing I want to do is assure you that we will not come to a conclusion, a final resolution on this discussion of decisional salvation versus lordship salvation in the time that we've got here this morning. In fact, we could discuss it until the world's flat and we're not going to please everybody with the decision that we make. But then we really aren't trying to please everybody. We're trying to see what God's word has to say about this idea of me and good works. My intention here is to briefly look at several passages that should get the basic idea, the basic understanding of this concept of works, and then spend time trying to deal with the practical application of what God is telling us we're supposed to be doing. I don't believe I'm going to unearth any new revelations for you this morning. <clears throat> My intent is more by way of reminder to get us refocused, especially during this rather hectic time, of the fact that nothing's changed as far as our commission. We're supposed to be involved. So let's look at God's word. Ask ourselves, what's he really saying? And I think if asked, the classic passage on the relationship of faith and works is probably found in the book of James. James 2.17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then he goes on into verse 26, and he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, did, did James get it wrong? I mean, he was the half-brother of Jesus, and I guess he could have gotten it wrong, but then Jesus kept explaining the same thing over and over in the Gospels. Matthew 7, verses 17 through 27 and, I mean, this is so classic. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's one of the scariest verses in Scripture. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Those are the Lord's words. In fact, he goes on, and Luke records something of the same uh, incident in Luke 6, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. So we're not sp supposed to just hear God's words. We're supposed to do something with it. Not just a nice thing to hear. 
And then Jesus goes on in that passage in Luke and tells the story of the man who built his house on a rock. <coughs> Peter. Peter deals with the same concept in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, now for this reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Seems like it's our responsibility to go about adding these qualities that Peter's talking about to each one of our lives. And then making certain that we practice these things, doing God's word. And this is just a small sampling of the overall concept in Scripture of doing Scripture. There's a lot more verses that even tell us, you know, why we've been saved, why we're supposed to be doing God's word. In fact, one of my favorite verses, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's the reason why we're supposed to be doing these good works, to glorify God with our lives. Probably the capstone passage on this whole subject that we're talking about <clears throat> may explain the marriage between salvation and good works. And it's found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The passage seems to make it perfectly clear. We're not saved by good works. Not at all. We cannot add anything to the salvation that Jesus Christ provided us. But it also makes it plain that we were saved for something. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And to top it off, these are works that God himself prepared for us to do. And I think that's where Jim's message from a couple of years ago and this message kind of come together. It's so important that we see the direction that God is heading and jump on board. We could argue all day long about whether these good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do are specific good works that he did. He created just for David, just for Tom, just for Ray. Are they specific to us? Or are the, the general good works of Scripture? And we won't come to a satisfactory conclusion on that argument either. But the fact is we were created for good works. <clears throat> so in trying to figure out just exactly how to figure out what God is doing, I found there were a lot of factors involved when you really get down to it that enter into the equation of deciding which way God's going. 
what are my talents, what are my gifts, what is my motivation, what have I heard from God directly. It's a lot to take in. <clears throat> but if I truly want to be the person that God has designed me to be, then I should probably be diligent in finding out what he's got in mind. Let's start with the number one priority in getting direction from God. First of all, pray. There is little that gets done to further the kingdom of God without prayer. And I guess that's why the church is on such a decline here in America today, because we don't take prayer seriously anymore. We don't engage in it enough. We don't rely on it to guide our lives. You want to know what God has in mind for you? Ask him. And ask him again and ask him a lot. Ask him passionately. Ask, ask him with expectation to hear what he's, what he's got in mind. Ask him in earnest and set aside time for prayer and meditation. Get involved with God. Prayer and meditation are incredible tools to learning exactly who God is and to tune us in to what he's got in mind. Saying the word meditation may conjure up some kind of metaphysical image in your brain, but, but it shouldn't. I mean, you don't even have to wear yoga pants to do it. It's setting time aside to listen to God, to feast on his word, <clears throat> and to talk to him about what his plans are for your life. How many times do we truly do that? Or is it just a quick, you know, show me what you want me to do, God, as we talk to our windshield on the way into work? The men's discussion this past Friday morning uh, I think it was David that brought it up you know, have you ever earnestly prayed that God would direct you to somebody who needed you that day have you ever earnestly asked him to show somebody that you could minister to David told the men that he's never done that a single time that God didn't answer him that day. And I believe that. And I have to admit that I don't know the cause and effect concept there on that type of prayer. You know, does God specifically show me somebody to minister to because I prayed for it? Or because I prayed for that, are my spiritual eyes more in tune and I'm able to see that? person who needs some kind of help. I don't know. I just know it's a really good place to start. Maybe another good place to look for what good deeds God wants me to do is in my assessment of my spiritual gifts. Do you know what yours is? Have you ever, have you ever utilized your spiritual gift in ministry? It's a really important thing. Everybody's got one. <clears throat> How do I use it? What's it for?
By definition, a spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service in a particular area. And the purpose for spiritual gifts is the building up of the body of Christ here on earth. If you need more information on spiritual gifts, 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Romans chapter 12. And all these passages deal with spiritual gifts and their purposes and their applications. They provide lists of some of the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives out. None of the lists is exactly the same, and I don't believe any of the lists are exhaustive. Are my talents spiritual gifts? Controversial area. There are those who would adamantly say, no, that's a talent. And they say that for a couple of reasons. There's not an indication in Scripture that gifts, the gifts listed in the passage are at all exhaustive. They aren't all the stuff that God has available for us. If I can use my talents for the building up of the body of Christ, then why would someone think it's not a spiritual gift? If our talents are used for the building up of the body in a prayerful and dedicated manner, who's to say it's not a gift? I've heard people say that a spiritual gift is something the Holy Spirit endows on someone, and it's apart from any talents they may possess. And... is something that is strictly on a spiritual level. And talents are things you have to work at and get good at. So if I have the spiritual gift of teaching, does that mean I don't have to study Scripture? No. No, it doesn't. If Bob and the Gershon brothers and Ray have the gift of music and they have a talent for music, does that mean they don't have to practice? Certainly not. So why would we think that because it's a talent, it's not a spiritual gift? It's used up for for glorifying God and building the body. We need to try to not put God in in the box that we want to put him in. We need to not define God by what we believe. Besides, we're talking about doing good works here this morning. Spiritual gifts may be one of the ways that, that uh, we can get on board the direction that God's already going, but it's just one way. I just want us to think in that area of spiritual gifts, how the Holy Spirit may have equipped you, because it's important to know how to function in the Spirit like that. Well, what are some other ways? What are our interests? What is it that, that you like to do? Maybe that would be a good indication of areas where you can do good works. Uh, what if you enjoy cooking? Could that be utilized to build up the body of Christ, to encourage people? Could it be utilized to uh, have people over for dinner, to encourage them? Could it be a way for us to get to know one another better, uh, to make the body more solid? Cooking a meal for a family that's sick or burdened or exhausted or stressed would that be a good work to provide encouragement? Sure it would. Everybody knows that. <clears throat> but cooking may not be your thing. So what is your thing? We've all got something that we're passionate about, that we enjoy, that we can, 
we can communicate to other people. What's something else to consider when it comes to getting on board the train that God's driving? There are a lot of Christians I've talked to that say something along the lines of, of course I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to. He just hasn't told me what to do yet, but I'm sitting here ready. It certainly brings up the question of initiative. Do I have a responsibility to take the initiative in doing something? Or isn't the Holy Spirit fully qualified and capable of telling me? Or am I supposed to step out of my comfort zone and go minister to people? When's the last time you read the book of Ruth? Been a while? Yeah, it certainly has for me, too. Uh, we normally think of the book of Ruth <clears throat> being included in Scripture to show the kinsman-redeemer concept of Scripture. But I'm not sure that was the whole reason for putting it in there. It may be to show us to take the initiative, that it's, it involves us doing something about it. Think about it. Ruth took the initiative, in fact, throughout the, throughout the entire book. Naomi helped her a lot, told her some things to do, but it's usually Ruth herself who takes on the responsibility to get things done. It's Ruth who takes the risks. It's Ruth who keeps on keeping on. And from the beginning of her story, it was Ruth who took the initiative to be a foreigner in a strange and distant land, to stay with her mother-in-law, even when Naomi pleaded for her to go back home. It was Ruth who approached Naomi about gleaning the fields for food. It was Ruth who took her leftover lunch to Naomi so she could or she could have eaten the whole thing, but she didn't. It was Ruth who determined to take a risk that her mother-in-law had proposed and follow through with the bold act of offering herself to Boaz in marriage. But the one thing you have to notice in reading the account, Ruth prepared herself well beforehand to be accepted by Boaz. And that's an important concept here about what we're talking about, is our preparation. Ruth's reputation had become very well known throughout the land. She was a woman of honor, a woman of hard labor. When the time came for Boaz to become the kinsman redeemer, it was a pretty easy choice for him. Ruth's character and integrity spoke volumes. She left positive impressions on everyone she came in contact with. When Ruth was around, a passion was ignited and it drove others to want to become better people. Though she was among the poorest of the poor, Ruth had riches beyond compare. Ruth was a woman whose heart was filled with passion and honor, and everyone around her knew it. She prepared for that time. Taking the initiative in our spiritual lives will be rewarded. There's nothing wrong with taking risks. It's, there's nothing wrong with not being afraid to fail, feeling like a fool being laughed at. Maybe you've been afraid to get in the game because you're afraid to lose. So you become a couch potato, or maybe in this case, a pew potato. A pew potato is a Christian who makes his way to church and sits and watches what's going on while snacking on the music and 
a few nice words that are said. They sit and watch what's going on, but are disinclined to Christian activity or exertion. Does it describe you? <clears throat> the lazy person always finds a reason to do nothing. Proverbs talks a lot about being lazy, and none of it's good. Proverbs 22.13 at least comes up with a great excuse for not going to work or school or even to church. I don't know if you remember Proverbs 22.13. This is the, the New Living Bible version, so it's going to be a little extrapolated. But it says, the lazy man is full of excuses. I can't go to work, he says. If I go outside, I might meet a lion in the street and be killed. There's an excuse to not do anything. What an imagination. <laughs> Hey, if there's a lion in, outside, go join the lion hunt, you know? The truth is there's always excuses, but there's very seldom reasons. For many, Christianity is a spectator sport. They come and they watch what's going on, but never involve themselves in working in the kingdom. <laughs> Let's face it, service to others can be hard, really hard might not be fun. It could stretch me beyond what I'm comfortable with, and we certainly wouldn't want that. Brings to mind Noah. You think he had fun? <laughs> Seriously, all the neighbors laughing at him. The neighborhood association writing him up for the big boat in his front yard. You know, all kinds of problems. But in the end, it benefited him greatly, didn't it? When it comes to God, victory starts the instant you refuse to simply watch life happen and you get involved in the game. Too many of us are afraid to fail or we're satisfied with living life, life vicariously through other Christians. Instead of being voyagers, we become voyeurs. We turn the TV on and absorb ourselves there. We've accepted our position on the sidelines and we shouldn't. A lot of Christians huddle up here at church and on Sunday mornings, may even call a few plays, but they never break the huddle. And no football team ever won the Super Bowl on the strength of their huddle, I can be assured. It's what happens after they break the huddle, when they get in and they play the game. That's what brings victory. This is probably a good time to talk about motivation, too. We can always all come up with things that motivate us personally. You know, because motivation is personal. What motivates you may not stir me to action at all. Some people are motivated by money, fame, power, popularity, any number of genuinely tempting things. When it comes to our spiritual lives, it would seem that love should be the greatest motivator of all. And all you have to do is read the letter that John wrote to the church that we call First John. And love is the answer for anything regarding being a Christian. And in a perfect world, it would be the only answer to what motivates you to do what Christ wants you to do. But it's not the only motivator. In fact, sometimes it may not even be in the running as a motivation at all. And I genuinely wish I could say that anything I'm involved in spiritually 
was motivated solely by love. Because I'd like to be able to say that honestly, because I'd be a really cool guy if I could say that. But the fact is, I'm not a really cool guy. And though love may enter into being a motivator for what I do in some areas, it usually isn't even close to the first thing that motivates me. You may think I'm going to hell for admitting that, but it's the truth. Love isn't always a motivator for me. My main and sometimes my only motivation for doing what I do as far as in the kingdom is obedience. And I don't think it's a horrible reason. God tells us over and over again in his word that obedience is important. And I have to admit, I wish love was the determining factor, but obedience is it. Closely associated with obedience, as far as a motivation for me, is I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want to fail him. I don't want him to be dissatisfied with me. At the end, when all of it's over, I don't want to hear him say, well, Tom, I guess you made it. Instead, I would love to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You may be disappointed to learn that it's not love, but I'm working on it. Here's an easy motivation. You want to be blessed? Be a blessing. Luke 6.38 says, Given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and they will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. What a great verse. You want to be blessed? Be a blessing. You simply can't outgive God, so that's not a bad motivation. One really bad motivation is guilt. Don't let that be a motivator in your life. It's not fruitful. It's negative. And you don't need to be guilted into doing anything. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The only thing guilt is good for is to bring us to repentance. All the rest of it is just trash. The organized church is really good at motivating people by guilt. That's not a part of this message at all. I don't want anyone doing anything motivated out of a sudden guilt. The Holy Spirit can lay ample motivation on you. It's not my job to guilt you into doing anything. All right, one more thing to look at, and that's attitude. How do we approach life in general? How do we approach our spiritual life? Does who we are on Sunday morning come even close to who we are all the rest of the week? I've heard coaches say things like, talent is 10%, attitude is 90%. Apparently, attitude is a big part of life for everyone because I looked up quotes about attitude, and there's thousands of them. I, I picked a few of them out. A positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. <laughs> Attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? If you don't think every day is a good day, try missing one. It's hard when I have to do it, and so easy 
when I want to do it. It's all about attitude. Actually, my favorite one of all time is by Lou Holtz. Ability is what you're capable of doing. Motivation determines what you do. Attitude determines how well you do it. And that singular quote seems to encompass a lot of what we're talking about. What is our overall approach to life? How do we present ourselves? Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? When you wake up in the morning, do you have a tendency to be bright and cheery or a big grump? How do you approach your life? Are you thankful for being alive? For having another day? Or are you sorry you have to face it? Think about approaching life with a genuinely gracious and grateful attitude. Looking at everything that you possess as a real blessing from God. Being truly thankful. What is your default attitude? How would others characterize you? <clears throat> do they see you as living a life of joy and peace? Or do they see someone who looks more like Eeyore with no hope or nothing worth living for or nothing even worth dying for? Grumpy Christian. That should be one of the biggest oxymorons in, in the universe on the same level as jumbo shrimp or plastic glasses. Every one of us should be the type of person other people point to when they're talking about people they want to be around. We should be the person they point to. Remember that grumpy isn't one of the fruits of the spirit. Grumpy is one of the seven dwarfs. Our approach to life should look exactly like what we are, children of the living God. Jesus said something about this concept of attitude in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Our outlook on life has great bearing on the kingdom of heaven. So very briefly, what are some practical aspects of this idea? The verse that speaks to me the loudest on this topic is one we went over earlier, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That should be the prime passage in our lives. In it, I think we can easily see what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to look like light. Big, bright, beautiful light is what we're supposed to look like. It tells us what we're supposed to do, good works. And it tells us what the purpose of those good works are, to glorify God. And this is so necessary. In our world today, everyone sees the need to be kind. Just be kind. How much does that cost you? We're surrounded by unkind people. We're in an unkind world. God be, can be glorified by those of us that merely extend kindness to other people. 
My pa- <laughs> oh, well, ain't that cute. <laughs> My purpose here is to just throw out a few ideas. If you don't know how to get started, maybe some of these things will help. I hope that you're so busy doing good things that you don't even want a list because you've got all your, your bases covered. But what are some of the first steps to being this person that God describes in Matthew 5.16? We covered some of it already, exercising your spiritual gift, uh, finding what will lead you to finding your purpose, finding the Holy, what the Holy Spirit has equipped you with. What are you passionate about? What stirs you up like nothing else? What's your heart inclined for? Whether it's letter writing or reading, you could turn those things into real spiritual blessings for other people. Do you have any idea of the number of people that just in this community here alone that just want somebody to talk to? Talking's free. Visit the sick, the lonely, the elderly, the shut-ins. Those are all places that require nothing but your time and probably a lot of patience. I realize that ministry in those areas is usually very hard. But I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 26, 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. There's nobody we shouldn't be ministering to. We already talked about natural abilities and talents. I don't care if you're a number cruncher that might be able to help somebody at tax time or a contractor or craftsman that could reach out to those who need projects done around their house. Your natural abilities could turn someone's world around and it could glorify God in the process. What about taking an assessment of your life experiences? Where have you been? What have you done? What are some of the painful memories you have, and what are some of the great memories you have that have equipped you to be able to deal with people, to help them through things? I know a family who takes a certain amount of money out of the bank in $50 bills And on December 23rd each year, they go out into the community and prayerfully look for people who look like they need some help. They go to the laundromat, to the dollar store, to homeless folks on the the street, and they attach a a scripture verse to every one of those $50 bills. And that and a little bit of conversation has brought about a lot of good stuff in people. During this COVID crisis, we've been blessed several times by a couple of families that put together goodie bags with scripture verses on them. And they leave them on the front porch and they ring the doorbell and run, just like when you were a kid. And God gets the glory. They put a lot of effort in it, and it works. It glorifies God, and it cheers people up. These are simple ideas that require some diligence in budgeting money and time and for benevolence, but they're sure worth doing. 
There's a whole lot of good deeds that don't require any money, just the love of Jesus Christ in your heart and a desire to see him glorified in the manner that you live. You'll never be able to outgive God, but you ought to try. I leave you with one verse here that stops me in my tracks every time it comes to mind. It's Luke 12, 48. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. I know I've been given much. In fact, I've been given everything. What will be required of me?